A few years ago, it was hybrids, then electric stole the spotlight. And now fuel cells are making a strong resurgence. Can hydrogen finally hit a home run? Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. We take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner, your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today, we're going to be talking about fuel cells that run on hydrogen, that power cars. And if you don't know anything about what that means, you're going to learn a lot because I've got three experts on hydrogen fuel cells joining me for today's show, including Brian Pivovar. He's the fuel cell group manager for the National Renewable Energy Lab, often known as NREL. Charlie Fries is the executive director for global fuel cell activities at General Motors. And Steve Center is the Vice President of Environmental Business Development Office at American Honda. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Charlie, I've got to start someplace. I'm going to start with you. General Motors built a fuel cell van in 1966, the Electra van, as you well know. We've seen all kinds of hydrogen and fuel cell development over the decades and decades. Now we're starting to see cars hit the market with Honda and Toyota and with Hyundai. Why all the activity all of a sudden? Why, after talking decades about the fuel cells, that we're starting to see them hit the market now? Well, 50 years ago, the technology was just coming right out of the space program. That, that Electrovan, that was the first introduction of space technology into a civilian sector. And we found the challenges, but they weren't really solvable in that time frame. In the last 15 years or so, the technology has, has just systematically been developing through all of the roadblocks. And now the teams have been able to get systems that not only can meet the technical challenges, but also start to address the cost barriers. And that's been one of the big developments that's happened more recently. And now you're also seeing the infrastructure coming out. So as the infrastructure starts to develop along with the vehicles, you'll see more of these types of things. Steve, Honda's been very aggressive about this. You had the fuel cell clarity, which you let certain people lease. Now you've got the latest generation clarity in California, and you'll let just about anybody go out We're and lease this well, thing. Anybody, anybody. We're ready for prime time. The, the fueling infrastructure's developing. Uh, it's very comfortable to drive around LA and San Francisco or between the two at this point. And uh, we've got a lot of interest in the car and uh, we have a car that we think uh, is uh, ready for the public. Very small volume right now, and you know it's not gonna grow just yet. Why come to market right now with it? Well, you need to start. So uh, there's kind of a ratcheting up between the units in operation and the fueling infrastructure, and we put cars out there, the fueling infrastructure is used, uh, there's more investments in fueling infrastructure, we put more cars out there. Gotcha. And Brian, what's NREL's involvement in all of this? What do you guys do over there that's related to fuel cells? So we do research in all sorts of renewable areas. And within the transportation area, we're particularly focused on energy efficiency um, 
and how we move forward and benefit other systems. So one of the great things about hydrogen is you can actually make it from wind and the solar energy and use it to do things that they usually don't do. They usually go to the grid, but in this case, you can move them into the harder areas to function, uh, like industry and transportation at some level. And uh, what were some of the technical hurdles that had to be overcome? I mean, what have been... It's taken decades to get here. What, what, Brian, what, well, what's... There's been billions of dollars put into this. Um, things like decreasing catalyst loadings, improving the durability, getting um, more durable membranes, um, stack components, balance of plant systems. There's just a ton of tremendous um, technological advances that have gone into these systems and basically allowed them to get to um, a point where at low production volumes, they have challenges from cost, but when you project them to larger scales, they can be competitive in the marketplace with the incumbent technologies. Yeah, some of the vehicles that were driving not even two decades ago, it, they, they were very much research projects, and this is no longer a science fair experiment. I mean, we are well beyond that now. Those older vehicles, I can, re I can remember hearing the stories about the first time one of the, uh, about 18 years ago, the vehicle was driving, and it had to go in a certain direction to keep the water inside the stack from sloshing to the wrong side, which would cause the stack to, to fail. So there, there's been a lot of development, and so systematically, the teams have gotten through each one of those. We've learned how to deal with water. We've learned to deal with hot and cold temperatures and the dynamic performance so that when you tip into the pedal, it behaves like you expect it to behave. And, and, and then the cost, right? Yeah, cost and uh, the um, uh, customer expectation for durability and range and fueling experience. So a lot's evolved in the rest, the rest of all of that. But Charlie mentions cost and our two companies have been working together. Uh, to reduce cost and come up with a design that we're going to be manufacturing together. Talk a little bit about this, because I think most people are unaware that General Motors and Honda are collaborating on actually putting these fuel cells into production. Yeah, you might think strange bedfellows, but it's a good, uh, a good arrangement. Uh, the two companies together were probably the uh, number one and number two uh, holders of patents for fuel cell technology. And in 2011, we formed a uh, joint venture to uh, come up with a fuel cell that was a more advanced design and to reduce the um, uh, cost uh, severely so that this would be uh, more of a mass scale powertrain. And recently, we made another announcement you probably want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so we've been working from a co-development standpoint and, and integrating the design, as, as Steve mentioned. Once we got it to the point that we, we could see the pathway to take that the next step, we formed this manufacturing joint venture, which was announced in January. And that will be uh, a jointly owned 50-50 manufacturing joint venture. It'll be located in Brownstown, Michigan. And at that, at, at that location, we will assemble the systems that will be used by both companies for fuel cell applications. I know General Motors has said in the past it was not going to introduce a fuel cell vehicle until it felt the technology had legs to it, if you will, that it wasn't going to be obsolete in a few years' time. Are we at that point right now where you think this, this technology's got legs to it? Well, we're at the point where we think it's time to go to a manufacturing system that we can actually start to scale up because, um, as I think I've talked to you about in the past, um, at, at the points in the, in the previous generations, the technology was actually evolving too fast. Um, we wanted it to do that, but it was too fast to invest in a manufacturing scale that could really push those limits from a manufacturing standpoint because it would have been out of date just so quickly. At this point, we're 
are continuing to advance quickly, but we've found the places where the advancements are going to happen. We know we've prepared for that, so we're designing a manufacturing system that can accommodate that. Basically, you build your factories around what you're going to build. So it, it's okay to skip a couple of iterations if, if you're not ready. But Steve, you've come to the market anyway. It was presumably a fuel cell that will be replaced in a few years' time. Why are you doing that? And we've, we, and we've been in the market for quite a while, actually. The uh, Clarity FCV that we introduced in December uh, is the third vehicle that we've leased to consumers. So uh, what we need to do is we need to get it going. And uh, we need to uh, reward the early investors in the uh, fueling infrastructure. In the case of California, California has a plan for 100 stations by the year 2020. So the states put up money, investors have put up money. We need to put the cars in the market. Uh, there's consumer demand for these cars. So we think it, it's time to start. Hmm. And Brian, I, I got to imagine that NREL works with all kinds of automakers, or, or how, do, how do you do your research and get it out to where it can be used? We, 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 we work with the OEMs as well as we can, as well as tier one suppliers and, and other people along these lines. Um, we'll look, look into um, any of the problems that they're most interested in. So um, we tend to focus on the Department of Energy priorities, things where they work with the auto companies as well, spe setting specific targets that will help enable commercialization. Um, and you have to meet all of these at the same time. So we have uh, large portfolios that interact with different industry um, academic groups and try to bring it all together. As Steve said, General Motors and Honda looks like they've got the two most number of patents. What's NREL? How does it play a role? What, what should a national lab be doing that would then help industry? So, so uh, generally supporting in pre-competitive areas. So, so we have a CRADA with GM right now uh, where we do collaborative work, and most of that work is focused at the pre-competitive areas mm -hmm. where we're doing enabling science, maybe not for the generation of vehicles that are going into production today, but what we have to do to basically keep taking the costs down, keep improving the performance and durability aspects of these things so they get more and more cost competitive. We're also looking across this, instead of just looking at the vehicles, where is the hydrogen gonna come from and, and how can you produce hydrogen from a renewable route to basically allow that to be a closed loop system where not only for the point sources where these cars are out there, there's zero emission vehicles, but also from in the energy generation sector, there's non emissions as well. Well, let's talk a bit about, about the infrastructure because to me, that's, that's the big hurdle to overcome. You guys have convinced me that fuel cells are ready to go or very close to ready to go. But what about the infrastructure? And I know, Steve, in California, the state is investing in right. the San Francisco and the LA area. What about Topeka? You know, <laughs> what about Peoria? Because if fuel cells are only going to be sold in a few urban areas, the industry is never going to get the manufacturing at scale. It needs to be able to make money on them. Right. So the next market for fuel cell uh, automobiles is the Northeast. And we've been working with advocacy groups there for the past decade or two. You're talking about New England, yeah, Boston, New York, or, uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, all of what are referred to as the ZEV states. Zero emission vehicle states, right. And uh, there's a lot of progress there. Uh, California is kind of easy. You have one large geographic area uh, with uh, one government and a lot of like-minded people. Uh, in the Northeast, it's a little more like herding cats. And we've been working with different groups. And again, we have the product. 
So we've invested on the demand side to create the demand for the hydrogen. Um, next is the uh, fueling infrastructure or the distribution of it. And then beyond that is the creation of the hydrogen. And you're starting to see all kinds of players uh, that you wouldn't think are likely uh, come into that space now. Hmm. So Brian, come back to you. Uh, what's it going to take to get the infrastructure in place? So the plan is kind of uh, starting from a seed and then growing out. So you can see that you know Southern California has LA and San Francisco, and then you'll add in Vegas. And basically, the idea is is that you'll start connecting these things by hydrogen highways and start growing them up in pieces. And that as the vehicles roll out, the public becomes to more accepting, and there becomes more of a demand. Then that infrastructure becomes more economic. As it, as it expands through the uh, entire country. By doing that, you can basically take the investment that California is putting in as a state right now and then spread it out in these other places in the Northeast and then look to tie Topeka or wherever it would be into this as well. And the costs are being driven down. So I would say the, the cost of building a automobile fueling station has halved from the first until the last one. That was still very built. expensive, though. Still I mean, you're expensive. still talking a couple of million bucks just to put in a refueling station. Right, but uh, it's coming down, and there's that kind of a cost trajectory. Well, and, and even a new petroleum station is not yeah. a trivial investment. The difference is there are just a lot of them out there right now. And, and this is partly where I think the, the cooperation with government is so important, the national labs and, and the rest of the government partners that we work with, because the, the advantage of hydrogen is it, it really is an energy carrier. That's all it is. And it, its advantages and its cost reduction is re it really lies in trying to cut across uh, the swim lanes that most people operate in and work more uh, uh, cross-sectionally and that will be where the costs really start to come down and, and NREL can help us uh, evaluate that from the standpoint of the electric grid and the transportation industry and the other businesses that are involved with that. I like you guys talking about our value proposition even better than talking <laughs> about it myself but a lot of this comes down to how do we basically lessen the learning curve how do we move down that quicker because a lot of the problems with hydrogen and fuel cell vehicles is, is that the scale so small we haven't learned as much so 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 Charlie mentioned uh, the fueling stations and the petroleum fueling station cost not being insignificant, but we've already learned everything about for fueling stations for petroleum. We don't know. We, we don't know enough about the things we don't know about. We've already been able to take so much cost out, and we know that there's a lot more that we can take out. Scale, um, you know, of the market, scale of product, that will all help push us down this learning curve. And, and part of the government's role is to make that as shallow as possible, basically take as much out of it and allow it to happen as expeditiously as possible. But the race is on, right? You have battery electric cars and you have fuel cell electric cars. Both require totally separate infrastructures. But the grid's already there. I mean, if I have an electric car, I can plug it in right here in the studio, no problem. But the hydrogen infrastructure's got to be built up a lot. And when I look at the race being on and the fact that hydrogen fueling stations going into place right now are all pretty much being done through government subsidy and now we got a new administration in town that doesn't really believe in that kind of government subsidy what's going to happen well in the in the case of california and, and this is the difference between the states and the feds the states have their own plans and and the subsidies are meant to be permanent and they're meant to uh, start it so I think after a while you won't need the subsidies because the costs are driven down to that point. Uh, there's also um, the need uh, for uh, improvements to the grid. So the notion about plugging in, uh, it creates a lot of stress to the grid. And if everyone plugs in together, the grid can't handle that either. 
And I think if you look at uh, fuel cells and you look at batteries, um, they're not mutually exclusive. There are going to be different kinds of electrification, and people are going to make choices. You, know, you can easily fuel at home with an electric car, and people, some people might prefer that. People that have irregular driving patterns or need to fuel on the go would prefer a fuel cell. Charlie, you've been involved with powertrains your whole career. You, you designed a lot of piston engines, in fact. What's the advantage of a fuel cell car over a battery electric one? Well, to start with, it's more than twice as efficient. So that's a, that's a big advantage. And then you The fuel cell The point. fuel cell is. And then when you couple that with the fact that the emissions that come out of the tailpipe are basically water vapor. So we make, a, we make electrical power. We get the advantages of an electric drive system, which has very nice torque characteristics. And you do that without having to put an expensive after-treatment system on the back end of the vehicle to, to purify the exhaust. That's all an advantage. Um, you couple that also with the ability to put a lot of energy on board with hydrogen. And that's what hydrogen's very good at doing, is putting a lot of energy on board. And that gives you the range. So you can have a 300 to 400 mile vehicle. And not only do you have the vehicle with the added range, but you can refill it or recharge it very quickly. Three minutes, you're back on the road. And even that is something that the batteries are going to be struggling with, even for the foreseeable future, is you put more battery on board, you might be able to extend the range, but at, at some point, you've also got to be able to charge it. And uh, once you've charged through the night, if you've got more extended period required, that you're kind of out of luck. Mm -hmm. At some point, you might need more battery just to support the battery you put on board <laughs> for the range. So. That's great. Brian, you, you touched on a critical thing. Earlier on, you mentioned uh, being able to make hydrogen from renewable sources, solar, wind, whatever. Today, as you know, 95% of all hydrogen in the United States is made from natural gas. Right. So it's creating a, high, a carbon footprint e even before it starts to push the car. So, so, so even coming from natural gas, there's benefits in using hydrogen from natural gas within the system. However, there's also the possibility of building out and building towards something where you're taking water, which is ubiquitous and everywhere, and taking these abundant resources of the sun and the wind. We use so little of them. As we build up more and more capacity to generate more and more solar, because they're variable and intermittent in the way that they behave, oftentimes what will happen is, is we get a plethora of them. If we take the extra and we run it into hydrogen, we can then use that to power our transportation, power our industry in, in clean, renewable, sustainable ways that just wouldn't be possible otherwise. So in a way, what you're saying is, instead of using solar or wind to generate electricity and store it in batteries, you're saying store it in hydrogen. Yeah, and, and there's some implicit advantages in hydrogen over batteries, um, particularly in long duration storage. So, so like solar power, you tend to get more of it in the spring, and you tend to need more of the energy in the winter and fall. And you can't do that kind of time shifting with things that don't involve chemical bonds and don't have the energy density of things like hydrogen. Hydrogen can either be the starting point or you can just take that hydrogen and do things like make ammonia or make synthetic natural or, or, or make natural gas or make hydrocarbons and then use them as well. So hydrogen can be a stepping point as one of these intermediate energy carriers to all of these other things as well. Do you see any of that being done, though, in terms of using solar and wind to generate high? So, 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 so I tell you that, that it's coming because, you know, what I don't get in many arguments about is there's going to be more renewable energy in the future. And, as, and the two sources of renewable energy that have a lot of capacity that we aren't using are the wind and the sun. Our biomass, they go for biofuels, but there's a finite capacity of it. It's really the wind and the sun that have this 
excess that we just don't use today because it's not economic. So we don't talk about we're not using solar energy because there's not enough of it. It's just making it cheaper. Wind and solar in the last eight years have dropped in price significantly so that they're now on par or even better than fossil-based electrons. Once that happens, you can then start moving them into these other markets and displacing some of the other fossil inputs that go with them. And, and, and that's another part of the research that, that we look at at the National Renewable Energy Lab and across DOE. You're going to add something to that, Charlie, or no? No, I think he, I think I can't really do much better than that. I think <laughs> he, he pretty much summed it up. But I, I think it comes back over and over again to you, you take the uh, availability of energy when it's there, and then using water and electrolysis, you've got your easy storage mechanism. And, and Brian was just telling me before the, before the meeting here, um, he said, you know what, um, we can actually the house energy that it takes to run your home in one day can basically be achieved through electrolysis of about one toilet flush. And that's, you know, that's an interesting way to think about else. just how little it actually takes in terms of water to actually do that. Well, I'm glad you raised that point because that was always my question. There's water problems in the world. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, right. a, a rare resource in some places. So, so, so if you come back to me, I can, I can help with this. Because, <laughs> because when you start talking about taking things like natural gas and coal plants offline because you're putting more wind and solar on, what you do is you remove the cooling requirements of these. So our energy system system is about 100 quads, and a quad isn't a number that means anything, but for the country, use about 100 of them. We reject about 60 of them as heat, and 40% and, and of our water use is associated with energy use in this country. As we start taking away coal plants and natural gas plants that need this water for cooling, we, we don't actually put coal-fired power plants where the coal is. We actually put them where the water is. So, so, so there's all these things about how, when you do this, there's so much energy in water and in chemical bonds that you don't need very much of it. And what you save from what you save from the other parts of the energy system are such large saves that then it's available for agriculture. It's available for everything else that you'd want it for. Hmm. Steve, there had been some talk earlier on of maybe putting hydrogen refueling stations at car dealerships. And yeah. then you get all your, your customers coming back to the dealership. Does that make any sense? Well, we're looking at that for electrification. I think with uh, hydrogen... What we found is that, for the most part, people want to go to fueling stations where they're comfortable. And auto dealerships don't have the uh, traffic set up for people coming and going that frequently, and space is scarce. They're also not always in commute paths. So people want to go somewhere where there's other people, it's well lit, there's a convenience store, they want lottery tickets mm -hmm. and the like. So we're sticking with that model for now. How many stations would we need, really, to get uh, the country covered? Because I know... We probably have way more gas stations than we need, really. And so how many, how many hydrogen stations? I don't know, but it depends on the uh, units and operations. So it's really uh, some kind of model. It's probably in the end, if they were all hydrogen, you probably need a similar amount of locations. Hmm. Um, but it's a transition. I think the, the numbers I've seen, it's about 11,000 stations. Really? Um, yeah, coast Total. to coast. Um, and that would basically meet the requirements. But um, because really we've got multiple stations on every single corner. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, when you think of the capacity and the amount of fuel you can put through one, you probably don't need that many. There used to be four at every corner. Yeah. <laughs> now, now they've got bigger aisles and faster pumps and... That's yeah. right. The interesting thing is, though, the investment is actually not that much different than what it takes to put that last three feet in on the electrical infrastructure and then the beefing up the lines to bring the power for charging batteries. Mm -hmm. It's about the same amount of investment on a coast-to-coast -coast basis. Charlie, I want to talk briefly about uh, a truck that you guys built for the U.S. Army, a fuel cell-powered Chevrolet Colorado. What's yeah. the military's interest in fuel cells? 
Well, it, it ends up lining up very nicely with what we look at for our retail customers also. It, it, they are looking for a vehicle that's more efficient. It, it, they like the idea of it being very quiet, and it, it is extremely quiet. It has a low thermal signature because it operates at, at a very low temperature because fuel cells are more efficient. Um, we have the ability to export power 25 to 50 kilowatts. When it's standing still, it's basically a mobile generator that you put anywhere you want it. Um, it also has that added ability to use the electric traction drive system to get better torque over a wide speed range. And when you talk about a vehicle that's going to negotiate very difficult terrain, that's a good thing. And the fact that it can do it and be unencumbered by wherever it needs to go, it doesn't need to stay on roads, it becomes less predictable. That's good for avoiding IEDs and other things. So um, if you think about the mission a little differently than maybe it's been done in the past, this could take soldiers from an airdrop location, get them 20 to 25 miles away from that safely, quickly, and they're not tired when they get there. And then it can actually go back, if you couple that with autonomy, it can actually go back and pick up more people. So all of these are things that could happen in the future. Brian, I got to believe there are a lot more applications beyond just the automotive industry. Sure. In Japan, they have household units. There's 30,000 or maybe uh, 50,000 or more uh, individual fuel cell units in home where they're doing combined heat and power applications. So you're basically delivering natural gas to these places. They're giving you the electricity for the house. And then they're taking the waste heat from that process, which is usually done at a power plant and then rejected to the environment. And they're using it to space heat and to water heat in those homes instead. So when you talk about using finite resources more intelligently, these combined heat and power applications are good uses to basically get the heat and the electricity out at the same time. Um, portable power, um, backup power, these are all markets where fuel cells are, are finding roads in. Steve, Honda does a great business building backup generators. Are they looking at fuel cells? Yeah, we are looking at uh, uh, the car itself can output power. So you can use... So if your power goes out, you plug your car you into the house and the run the house. And you can even do it indoors because you don't have any carbon monoxide. <laughs> so all of this is possible. So we're down to the very end here. Are, are we, is this the first step? Are we hitting the hydrogen economy? I think this is the beginning. Yeah. This is really the beginning. It's a really exciting time. I mean, for somebody who's been in it for 20 years to actually see vehicles on the road, um, people had told me fuel cells will always be five or 10 years away. And five or 10 years ago, that was true. Um, yeah. but, but it's no longer true. So, so we're, they're we're here. finally getting yeah. to that five to 10 years. That, that, that time is now. Yeah. Look, I want to thank all three of you for coming on today's show. Very interesting discussion. I drove the Honda Clarity uh, just very recently was knocked out by how good the car is. So the car is absolutely ready. Now we just got to get that infrastructure out there. But again, gentlemen, thanks so much for the discussion today. Much appreciated. And I hope all of you learned as much as I did. In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. We take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world.